We're continuing through the book of 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel 21. Um, David is being chased. He's being chased by Saul all over the place. He's being chased by Saul because Saul is going to kill him. And he's running. He's running for his life. He first went to Samuel, if you remember. Saul followed him, and that's when Saul was brought to his face in prayer, prophesying, if you will. But Samuel couldn't keep him safe. He fled from Samuel to Jonathan, his best friend. Jonathan, the son of the king. They prayed together. They made a covenant together to always love each other, but Jonathan can't keep him safe. Now David's running, literally, for his life. His situation hasn't changed all that much. Now he runs to the tabernacle, to Ahimelech. And this brings us to 1 Samuel 21. It's a long passage. Please remain seated. But hear God's holy and inspired, inerrant word. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul, was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not... Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? 
Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that even in the narrative portions of your word, this history that we just read, there's spiritual truth for us, for your people. Nothing in your word is random. Nothing in your word is accidental. We pray that you would encourage our hearts as we study the life of our great king and of David, our brother, in Jesus' name, amen. So David's troubles in this life, I think, are relatable to us. David is seemingly acting unwise, and that's to put it kind. But who of us can look back on our lives and not see the stupid things we've done and how God used them? God used them in wonderful ways to bring you to where you are right now, married to the person you're married to if you're married. I think of my marriage to my wife and all of the the idiotic things I did, and yet somehow we're married. How did that happen? That was the Lord. In David, we see a man who trusts God, who's striving to do the will of God, but he's in a crucible. Someone's chasing him to kill him, and he's making bad decisions. There are many blessings, outworkings of this part of his life that we get to benefit the best of today. One of those is we get to see the working of David's heart in the Psalms. The Psalms that David wrote really just reflect all that's going on in his life. It's like a diary of his prayers to God. And the events that we read of today are the backdrop for two Psalms that are precious to us, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, which we'll talk about over the next few weeks. But let's look at 1 Samuel 21 this evening as we look at foolishness and faithfulness. No matter how foolish we are, and this is the theme of the sermon, no matter how foolish we are when we're beset on every side, when we're feeling surrounded and we know that we're making bad decisions, God is still faithful. So first, let's look at David's lies. This is, well, really throughout chapter 21. Let's look at verse 1. When Ahimelech comes out to meet David, he's trembling because David is alone. So David is a member of the court of the king. When he traveled, he traveled with people who were with him on behalf of the king. But here he's coming alone, and Ahimelech knows it. And Ahimelech probably knows as well that Saul is um, trying to kill David, or at least that David has fallen out of favor. So here comes David to the tabernacle, to a place of worship. I think this was a good decision. It's always a good thing to seek God when you're in distress. And we know in chapter 22, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, that Ahimelech actually inquires of the Lord for David. So David goes there and he's seeking wisdom from God and Ahimelech inquires of the Lord for him. But that doesn't mean that Ahimelech isn't nervous. He's nervous. And yet, I think his treatment of David is kind of a blessing. We get to see what a brother looks like. And Ahimelech actually comes from two Hebrew words, ah, which 
is kind of the root of the word brother, and Melech is king. So his name means in Hebrew, my brother's the king. And here he's treating David as a brother, and certainly his brother, David, will be king, although his name probably was a reflection of his job as a priest in the line of Eli. But regardless, he shows himself a true friend to David, the future king. He treats him as a brother. But he is afraid and he's trembling. So David's behavior is kind of contrasted with Halimelech's behavior. And Ahimelech, sorry, just trying to get that out. Ahimelech is the one who is uh, coming out um, more noble in this particular situation. And he has courage, even in the midst of his fear. He trembling reproaches David. David says, I've come alone, and he just throws out a great big fat lie. He just lies. Why are you alone? Verse 2, the king charged me with a matter, said, don't tell anyone about it, and I've had to come in haste because it was so urgent. He just starts lying. This is something that I love about Scripture, and you should love it too. The Bible and those who write in, in the Bible by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're not, they're not sugarcoating the heroes of Scripture. They don't varnish the lifestyle of David at all. The Bible doesn't justify his actions at all. It just reports the facts, what happened. And unfortunately, here we see that David just lies. Now, he may have thought he was doing a good thing by protecting Ahimelech in some way. He may have thought he had good reason to lie, maybe to give Ahimelech plausible deniability by not telling him the full truth. Or However he manipulated it in his own mind, he did it. But think about it. Do you think the priest would still have helped David if David had told him the truth? Like he did Samuel. Hey, I'm running from Saul. He's trying to kill me. Samuel prayed with him, helped him, whatever he did. Ahimelech would have done the same thing, even if he knew the truth. He certainly wasn't an enemy to David. He probably still would have helped, just as Samuel had done. Would Doeg, the Edomite, still later have betrayed Ahimelech to Saul and had all the priests killed? Probably he still would have done that. So the bottom line is David had no way of knowing what would happen There was no reason really for him not to be honest and just trust God in his providence. So I thought this was just a helpful helpful thing for all of us to remember. When we're tempted to lie or to fudge the truth or to gloss over an important detail or to tell a half-truth because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or whatever that thing might be. I'm not saying be mean to people. But certainly we should always be honest, completely honest in the words that come out of your mouth. The only time this is not the case is when someone's going to die, like the Nazis interrogating you. Tell us where so-and-so is so that we can go kill him. Okay, I'm going to lie. Because this is not a fair question. It's an immoral question. And I don't have to give someone up to be killed. But David didn't know that, and none of us are ever in those situations. So we have no reason to not be perfectly honest all the time, as much as is within us. For us in the West, telling the truth is, is right. 
honesty, trusted God to work out the details. Remember Jesus told Pilate that he came to do what? To bear witness to the truth. Yes, the truth about God, but Jesus was always honest as well. Speaking the truth in love is our calling. When you're not speaking the truth, you're giving in to fear or distrust in some way. So we can learn a lot from David here. Was it foolish to lie? Probably. Did he think he had good reason? Probably. But the bottom line, we look in retrospect and we see that he should have probably just told the truth. And I'm not pointing fingers at the great man without pointing fingers at myself as well. How many times have I done that and much worse? But it was an encouragement to me to flee from deception of all kind, to speak honestly with my neighbor, with one another, with my wife, my children, and to trust God for the outcome. And thankfully, we live in a place where no lives are at stake, so we can just basically take this as ground truth, speak the truth. But David lied. What else? David's hungry. This is verses 3 through 5. So this was truth. He shows up. He's desperate. They're in a hurry. He's hungry. He says, give me the bread. You got any bread? I want some bread. So remember that this is recorded in Scripture for a reason. This whole, this whole you might think this is just a strange part of the story. He, he takes the bread from the tabernacle and he eats it. What's happening here? This is in Scripture for a reason. Verse 6, the priest gave him holy bread. There was no other bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. The bread of the presence was used for worship. It was meant to signify the presence of God among the people of Israel. There were 12 loaves, one loaf for every tribe. And this is the law that God gave to Moses. You read about this in Leviticus. Leviticus 24.6, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be on each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. What's the point of that? Well, God's presence among his people, of course, but all of the ceremonies of the tabernacle and the temple in some way point to Christ, in some way point to our Savior. And of course, Jesus called himself in John 6, the bread of life. He's, he's taking on the bread of the presence and he's saying, that was me. That was pointing to me. If you eat that bread, you'll never be hungry. The bread was to be forever on the table before the Lord replaced each week and eaten by the priests. Christ is ever before our Lord. And we're to feed on him, on his word. This is real food and real life, real spiritual food. What do we pray every day? Give us this day our daily bread. Yes, give us food to eat, but also give us spiritual life every day. So the bread pointed to the Messiah. David wasn't a priest. It was not lawful for him to eat the holy bread. Do you know Jesus actually points to this incident in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When Jesus' disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath, they were plucking grain and eating it 
because they were hungry. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, Have you not read what David did? This is Jesus talking. When he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were there with him, but only for the priests. He says in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's not saying that David didn't break the ceremonial law. He's saying that David had a great need. And because of this, it was allowed. And now we also see that the bread was a type of Jesus, a sign of Jesus, if you will. And all the law and the prophets pointed to him. So when you see David taking the bread of the presence, there should be, a, there should be just a, a faint aroma of Christ. And David eating his fill of the bread of presence. He was nourished in the house of God, eating the holy bread. In his great panic, he ran to God and took hold of the bread. I don't want to make too much of it, but we should also take the holy bread, Jesus, when we're in a desperate panic. It's a good response to run to the bread of life. So I'm being kind of hard on David here, and I don't mean to do that. It's easy to point fingers at him. He's lying. He's implicating the priests. The priests we know later all get massacred, all of them but one. He's eating the bread of the presence from the tabernacle. How irreverent is that? But there's relevance for us as well. We do a lot of things that don't make any sense. And yet God is still with us. He's still faithful to sustain us. And if there's one lesson we can take from this is that even in the midst of our stumbling through life, God sustains his people. You feel like, oh, I made this mistake, or I did that incorrectly, or I shouldn't have acted that way, or I shouldn't have done that. Well, maybe. But God sustains his people. Don't be discouraged. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Any good thing you have is by the mercy of God anyway. And have you ever thought that every day that you sit down at your table and you eat, I mean, you actually are having a meal with your family, every day that that happens and you give thanks to God, this is just a reminder of God's grace and his mercy and sustaining you every single day. It's more than we deserve. God has preserved you despite all that we do to mess it up. He will not be messed up. So be encouraged with that. So David lies. He eats the bread of the presence. But then look at verses 8 and 9. Here I see a great providence of God, a great and wonderful blessing. So David's got his bread. Remember, he just shows up. He's running. He said, I need bread. I need a sword. Okay, here's the bread of the presence. And do you have any weapons? Well, we have this one weapon. It's the sword of Goliath. And David said, okay, there's nothing like that. Let me have it. And he took it. And it's a big sword too. 
I think of like a Scottish broadsword, just this massive thing, this normal-sized guy holding this five-foot-long sword. Think of the implications of what has just occurred. David used that sword to kill Goliath. He knocked him down with the stone. He took his sword and dispatched him, cut his head off with that very sword. Well, what's it doing in the tabernacle? Instead of bringing this to his own house, to his own tent, for his own glory, he gives the sword back to God. What's he saying? He's saying this victory wasn't my victory. This victory belonged to God. So now he runs back to the tabernacle. We don't know if he knows that the sword is still there or not. But now God in his providence gives David back this sword and says, take it. What's the the point? The point is that God in his faithfulness is reminding David that he will be with him and he's faithful even in the midst of great odds. I saved you from Goliath. It's almost as if God is saying, look at this sword, David. I saved you from Goliath. I'll save you from Saul. Just trust me. Have courage and trust me. The fact that he gets the sword and doesn't hear that message in his soul I think just shows you how desperate he is, how scared he is, how lonely he is. Where can he go? He knows he can't stay there. He's been to everyone else he can go to. He can't go to his family. He'll implicate his family. Saul will murder them. So where can he go? He can go to God. But he won't be content with that, at least not at this time in his life. He decides to run to Achish. He had forgotten God's reminder that he would never forsake him. He had forgotten the great victory that the sword represents, and he ends up taken off and running. This also makes me remember the importance of just remembering what God has done in your life. I've learned some important things from my children, but my girls have been faithful to to journal their prayers and their lives, and it's so helpful. I'm not as faithful in that as I should be, but what I am trying to be faithful at is always recording the answers to prayer and the works of God in my life in some way. What are those ways? Well, I have a Bible that I've scribbled all over. Scriptures, when when God is faithful to a promise or something that is significant in my life, I'll put a date next to a scripture. And I'll always remember that when I I read through the Bible every year, like many of you. And I get to that scripture and I'm reminded, ah, God was faithful to me. Or I've started putting reminders in my calendar on my phone that just repeat every year. And every year I'll reach a date and I'll go, ah, God answered that prayer. God answered that prayer on that date. How faithful is our God? No matter how you do it, you need to strive to remember God's faithfulness. Because we're forgetful, because we're lazy, because we're easily distracted, you need to strive to remember God's faithfulness. Sometimes, like the sword, God might just give you a very clear reminder. Hey, remember this. Remember what I did. 
But we need to be proactive as well. And I would encourage you, find a method to remember answers to prayer, to remember God's great works in your life, so that every year when those dates come around, you remember what he's done. Think back where you were 10 years ago. What was that? 2012? Think back 20 years ago, 2002 or 30 years ago, 1992. Like, can you imagine all of the things God has done for you between then and now? If you had been keeping a list, you would have a book full of stuff that, that God has shown his faithfulness to us. I wish I had been doing that. But start today. Start today somehow trying to capture God's faithfulness in your life. David should have remembered God's faithfulness. If he had, he might not have been so eager to run ahead in his own strength, in his own wisdom, and really almost end up dying. Let's look at David's foolishness in verses 10 and 11. He goes to Achish, the king of Gath. We don't know why he thought Achish was safe. But the people, the Philistines, they don't like David at all. David grew up 15 miles from Gath in Bethlehem in that area. Maybe he knew Achish. We don't know. It seems like they do know each other somehow. Achish ends up protecting David in later chapters of 1 Samuel with David actually living among him. We're not told exactly what the backstory is. But what we do see is the response of the people. And they want David dead and gone. They don't like it. This is the hero of Israel. And here he is, carrying Goliath's sword. And here he is. That's not good. Get him out of here. Let's kill him. It says, verse 12, the understatement is just kind of funny. David took these words to heart and was much afraid. In other words, he realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'm about to die. These people will kill me. So he changes his behavior. He pretends to be insane in their hands. On the doors of the gate and lets his spittle run down the beard. He's acting like a crazy man. Do you see how far our own pride and presumption can take us? How low did David have to get? I mean, certainly God used it. That's the point of the sermon. But how low did God have to bring this man before he would return to God and trust him? The anointed king of Israel is acting like a madman. He's acting in a way that is deplorable to save his own life. We don't know if Achish realizes what David is doing or not. I kind of think Achish knows what's going on. And that's why he says what he does to kind of get his, get his friend out of there. But regardless, it works. Achish doesn't let them harm David, and David ends up leaving, escaping that dangerous situation. In the end, God saves David once again, despite 
all that he's done. So this chapter, although it doesn't show the best side of David, it gives us great confidence. It's like when you read Peter in the New Testament saying dumb things and acting stupidly. I'm encouraged. I see myself there. I'm like, oh, wow, thank you, Lord. Or you read about Samson and all of the things that he did, and yet he's a man of faith. Oh, praise God. If God saved Samson and could use Samson and Peter and use Peter and David in the midst of all of these bad decisions, certainly he's much bigger than my bad decisions. Amen. God remains faithful despite our unfaithfulness and even our foolishness. And because of this event, like I mentioned, we have two very precious psalms. Psalm 34, Jesus, sorry, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I can only imagine David acting like a madman and still in the midst of that, seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And the Lord did. And he will be just as faithful to each one of you. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you truly condescend to bring people like us into your kingdom. Lord, we are sheep, the sheep of your pasture. Herd animals often are not the smartest, and we don't claim to be smart either, but we are yours. Help us when we stray. Help us when we do foolish things, when we wander. Bring us back to your arms. Bring us back to the fold. Bring us back to the safety within your gates. Don't let us perish. Remember that we are but dust. And after we've returned to a clear trust of you, we pray that we, like David, could give you praise and honor and glory, that we could remember all that you've done to magnify yourself even in spite of our foolish decisions, and that you would be glorified, that you would sanctify us and raise us up from strength to strength. In Jesus' name, amen.